0: In this episode of STEMIVEST Podcast, Marcus and I talk with Carsten Schulz. Carsten Schulz PhD is an engineer, computer scientist and educator. He's leading the Digital Technologies Institute and is a designer of the B4 modular microprocessor for the classroom. Carsten has a background in the ICT industry, specifically in research and development. He's been involved in the digital technologies education space since 2008. Some of his previous activities include Young ICT Explorer and Bebras. Most recently, he designed and manufactured the B4 modular microprocessor, which students can experiment with in the classroom. Karsten is passionate about digital and biological systems, their similarities, and how things work deep inside. This is STEMiverse Podcast, Episode 16. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. So here we are with Marcus in the Stilvers studio. It's a studio right now. It is. And we are talking to Carsten Schultz. Uh, who is in Brisbane right now. We've got um, a lot to talk about with Carsten. And uh, thank you for joining us in this. Uh, in the, for the next hour, Carsten. Really appreciate it. It's great to have you on. And uh, we'd like to get started uh, with um, taking a few minutes to introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a bit about your background, where you're coming from, and then uh, drive it all the way to today. And what is it that you're actually working on and what excites you these days?
1: Yeah, hello, and uh, thanks for having me on your program. It's fantastic to be speaking with you today. Uh, so a bit of introduction about myself. Um, I'm um, actually an electrical engineer, specialization in electronics. I'm also a computer scientist. I, as you can tell from my accent and from my name, um, background is German, came to Australia in 99. I did study my electrical engineering in Germany. Then I worked for a large American uh, software companies, actually computer software and hardware company. And um, and then I joined the uh, the largest German software company in the R&D department. Then I moved to, Austra- in Aust- to Australia in 1999 and worked for a cooperative research center, a so-called CRC. And then from uh, 2001 to 2012, I rejoined the German software company, but in Australia, and established their Australian and Asia-Pacific research arm. Um, so that included Australia, um, China, India, and Singapore.
0: Uh, you're talking about SAP, right? That's right, yes. Yeah.
1: Certainly, only one large German software company that everybody knows. The largest.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're,
0: we're not going to hold that against you. Um, <laughs> yes. no, my, no. my wife has worked with SAP. Hey, Apple uses
2: SAP. Everybody yeah.
0: uses SAP. Uh, I think it's a great German conspiracy. Uh-huh. I'm just joking here because you know the the joke in the industry is so complex that you need to be a rocket scientist to, to <laughs> figure it out.
2: Sorry about that. We're regressing though. So, but research and development of SAP. Yeah. So, what what did that entail? Because when you think about SAP, you think of I guess ERP, yes. enterprise resource planning, that kind of thing. It is complex stuff. But right? I'm sure SAP does a lot more than just that side of the coin.
1: That's right, and. And that was part of our mission to extend that, so we did a number of really cool things um, we We pioneered um, often together with our university partners uh, so we built for example social media, social media uh, traffic apps um, that would read Twitter, put it this through um, um, an artificial intelligence engine, and then spit out results that would then be put on the map it was great that was one sentiment analysis hmm. was the first um, app on the App Store for SAP at the time. Um, My personal specialization is workflows, uh, business process management, so I'm interested in the order and sequence of things and and how things connect, right, how the control of, of things. Uh, we did even re- robotics, we did telepresence, we built, um, together with the University of Queensland, a very cool telepresence robot, which we used for video conferencing, so we could use that for our conference today, and that allowed uh, the remote party to um, remote control that robot, so and express feelings and gestures like leaning forward, leaning back, you could actually shake the your screen left and right. So if you were not agreeing with what was being said, you could shake your head, <laughs> then, right? And then this remote robot would would shake its head as well. It was pretty nice. As part of that, I uh, traveled the world, uh, took me to a lot of interesting places, met with great people, and uh, f- hold a number of patents as a result of this work um, at the SAP Research Department. So it was really cool and really interesting stuff. A uh, number of things found their way into product, other way other things didn't but that was okay because not everything research can become a product Um, but it really gave us a sense of the how often how hard it is to take something from the initial concept stage and then turn it into a product that you then sell to the market yeah
0: it's quite interesting for me at least uh could you tell us a bit about what the environment is uh, or was at the time in one of those sap research and development teams and um like In a nutshell, how would you analyze a problem, try to figure out what its components were? You've got an expertise in business process management as well, which probably comes in handy when it comes to analyzing uh, the innovation process in the team itself. How was learning taking place?
1: yeah good po- uh, it was a great environment very entrepreneurial environment uh, We had um, great partners in the universities we had great partners inside the product department and we tried to bridge that that gap we 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 developed ideas or often jointly developed ideas uh, with with partners external internal partners. Uh, We did rapid prototyping early on. I think we actually introduced agile development into SAP at the time. Um, We started that in in about 2001, 2002. We had a great team of engineers that we worked with. So the researcher would formulate ideas, develop them with the engineer, would turn them into code, iterate around that, involve the universities, involve the product department, and then bring this to a proof of concept. For which we would then make the decision of how we want to go forward with that um, within the existing SAP technology stack at the time. So a very, very entrepreneurial, engaging, always learning environment, um, meeting with great people who have great ideas and trying to put these ideas, making them happen. It's great.
0: Were those projects uh, kind of secret? But you mentioned that I'm just thinking, Skunkworks of the U.S. military now versus how things are normally done in like in, in a more organised way, hierarchical way. Uh, were you like a member of Skunkworks for SAP? Is the rest of the company like that?
1: Uh, at the time, yes. Well, they're both both kinds of projects. Some of them were more visible. Others we called them submarine projects. We kept going on them because we weren't quite sure in which way they would develop. Not because we wanted to keep them secret, um, but simply because we were not entirely sure which way to take them. Um, and then at the right time, we then surfaced with them. Um, so both aspects, of course, in many projects, there's an element of confidentiality, right? You cannot talk about them at the time, um, especially when it's becoming part of a bigger project, that's strategic for the company. Um, but in most of our activities, we're actually quite open. Um, and in most of them, we involved partners
0: Mm. Universities in particular or other companies as well?
1: Also both, yeah, universities and other companies, yes. So especially in the context of European Union-run and funded projects, we would have partners like, um, for example, IBM. They were part of some of our projects, right? So there was collaboration between the companies. We worked also with HP and, and their labs division. Okay,
2: awesome. So I don't know you from SAP. I know you from young ICT explorers, which... I believe, was a SAP-sponsored, based competition?
1: Yes, SAP uh, Young ICT Explorers is an uh, is an initiative by SAP. I had the fortune of starting this in uh, about 2008. Because I've left SAP, I'm, I'm no longer actively involved in Young ICT Explorers, but what I hear is still going, and it's going strongly, so I hear they've... Um, um, a large number of uh, networks uh, or locations now and reach large number of students with that. Just
2: briefly, what what is it? The, yeah, the, the, is Young the
1: ICT Explorers, um, the intention here is to reach out to the kids and give them an opportunity and an environment in which they can take pride in their work and showcase that uh, to others. So um, the background of young ICT Explorers uh, goes back to the, about the year 2008 and at the time We had a dinner at the University of Queensland. UQ was hosting a dinner, a teacher appreciation dinner, where the faculty was talking to the teachers about the the things that were happening at the university. And I happened to sit next to a teacher, and we were lamenting the issue of why students are less and less interested in, in studying computer science and the the situation back then, I mean, we're talking almost ten years ago. Um, the whole environment was very different to today. I mean, today we've got heaps of competitions and, and, and maker spaces and maker fairs and back then there was far less. And uh we felt that the students don't have an outlet where they can showcase their stuff. Compare this to, for example, sports. Every Saturday, students were interested in sports can show what they can do, right? They go on the sports field, they play soccer and netball and cricket and the like. But back then there was nothing for the students in, in technology. So we set up this Young IST Explorers, as today we would probably call it a Maker fair, where students can, um, for as long as they like, work on a project of their choice. We said, well, we don't tell you what they sh- should be working on or what technologies they should be using. We just said, Do something exciting with technology, and once a year we meet and you showcase that to us. And and that hit a nerve. Um, Young IC explorers grew from Brisbane to Sydney and then to Melbourne and uh, Hobart and Townsville and Perth and Canberra. And uh, it's a very nice environment for the the students to come together and also look at what others, what, what stuff other kids are doing and get ideas. And we often find that students go back and the day after the Young ICT Explorers event, they then start designing the next project for next year. So imagine that students working for like a whole year on on their projects. That's something that you can't really do in the school environment simply because you don't have so much time. Yeah. Yeah. But often schools could combine that, like they, they would say they've got a Young IST Explorers work group at their school, so they use Young IC Explorers as a character. But I should mention, I'm currently not actively involved in Young IST Explorers. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay, yeah, No, that's okay well, because
2: it segues into what you're doing today, which uh, is... Uh, a before we get to yeah. what you do now, I'm just destroying okay. my segue oh,
0: sorry. here. Sorry, sorry. That's okay. i <laughs> kick it back. Can kick the ball back to you. Uh, since we are the topic of young ICT explorers, I'm just looking at the website now. Still going strong. It's been it's been going on since 2010 at least, from what I can see here. That's what the uh, first one. The yes, the winners for 2016 have been announced. Is that a team sport? So do participants go into teams and then participate as a team in
1: the competition? They can if they want to. The competition is unless it has been changed. I think it hasn't for groups of up to four children. So right. some kids prefer to work alone. That's okay. Or they can form teams, two or three or four students. And that's that's great for, for teamwork and the like. But students can participate, I, I think, um, individually if they choose to do so.
0: Yeah. So... Uh... I can see here that one team member has to attend a judging event. So you have rules, judges uh will look at the various aspects of the um, whatever th- is it that the team has put together and made, and then there's criteria to choose which one is the winner, right?
1: Yeah, like like um innovation innovation, for example, how innovative is the idea, um, how difficult is the problem and how well was it executed? and how well, very importantly, how well it's documented and presented,
0: right? Right, yeah, because it's, you need to support your work by submitting uh, documentation in various files. There's documentation, there's video you can put in, um, iWorks here, PvP, <laughs> presentation files, etc. So you need to substantiate what you're yeah. working on. just like real life, Documented. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Do you think that social aspect is what makes it, what makes um, science and technology, studying of science and technology, as fun as, say, playing soccer is on a Saturday?
1: Definitely. When you look at the kids there, yes, um, there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of passion there. And I think it's an environment for those kids who are um, um, STEM-minded, who are who are doing great stuff, that they can show this to their parents and and their teachers. Because the reality is often, like, if you do that stuff at school, for example, often you can't show it to very many people. Um, Even if there are many kids around you, they may not be very interested in what you're doing. But all of a sudden, you come in an environment where there are hundreds of other kids, like-minded STEM kids, and they say, wow, and I understand what you're doing, right? And I've got a few ideas of how you can take it further.
2: Awesome. So, do you know of any other competitions like this around
1: Australia? Uh, like that, I think the, um, the Crest goes into that direction, although I've never attended a Crest event. Uh, the, uh, the, the various um, LEGO competitions, they have got something like this, although I think they're a bit more directed in terms of the, the topic and the, the technology. But yeah, they would be playing a similar um, division, similarly.
2: Okay, brilliant. So I should ask, what are you doing now? <laughs> Good question.
1: <laughs> okay, so at the moment, um, I, I now run um, a company. Um, that's It's called the Digital Technologies Institute. And um, the focus of the company is to help teachers um, get a really solid grip on computer science. Because the reality is the foundations haven't changed that much. Um, even in the last 45 years. There's, of course, a lot of changes on the surface and tools and apps and terminology, but um, the underlying foundations today are very much the same as they were, let's say, in the 1960s. Yes, computers have become smaller, which is great, so we can now carry them in our pockets rather than... (laughs) Cheaper. Cheaper, yes. Um, But when we teach it to our kids, I think it's very important that we understand the foundations because then... That we really future proof ourselves by, by knowing the foundations, what's happening under the hood, and that's what I'm I'm interested in exploring and conveying to the teachers through the Digital Technologies Institute.
2: So how do you do this?
1: Yeah, um look we we started in the institute and looking at the foundation of the foundations and that is the inside of a computer. Okay, so I often tell the kids, okay, who's, or ask them who's got um, an electronic device, a phone, a tablet, or a laptop, or the like, and all the hands go up. Everybody says, yes, have got that. And then ask them, okay, who of you has looked inside one of these devices? And that usually brings the number down to maybe 20%.
2: Twenty yeah, well. percent.
1: Some of them have taken that's, their old. Yeah, think that's good. <laughs> yeah, okay. well it helps when your when your phone cracks and <laughs> it splits open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. by accident. <laughs> and and given that that everything that we do, every mouse click, every keyboard stroke, every time we touch touch screen, that goes through the processor. So I was really interested in exploring in how can we make that visible because that is the central part of the computer. This is where everything um, is, is happening, all the action is, whether in, in, in the laptop, in, an, in a phone, in an iOS device. Um, but we know so little about it inside the microprocessor. So the thing that really annoyed me is I studied both electrical engineering and computer science, and I felt I knew too little about this device. And then I, because at the university, we, we talk about logic chips, And we do and logic and the likes, fantastic. And then the next step is, hey, here's a processor and now here's the assembler. And at no point was there a transition of how we now turn the logic chips into a machine that actually can add and subtract and which can store information and retrieve it. I was always interested in how the immaterial becomes material like when I press a key on my keyboard, right? How this then turns into some action that for example, then a, a motor gets activated, which then closes a valve in a machine which sits on the other side of the planet. We do have the technology, but I felt I never really properly understood it. And um, so I came across a really good book. Um, I was recommended on Slashdot, and that is uh, from an engineer from Microsoft. Uh, His name is Charles Petzold. Uh, I think the book was published in around 1999. It's called Code, The Hidden Language of Computer Hardware and Software. So I don't Is know. it code? It's Sorry? code, just CD. code, yeah. Code, C-O-D-E. Yep. And I started reading and I was really impressed um, because what um, Charles Babbage does is he develops very methodically from the bottom up the mot- motivation of why we need these machines, of course, knew that, um, but then also how you take these little switches together. And back then... And he says, look, we could have done this with relays in the 1850s, 1860s. Nobody made the connection back then. Um, but he then connects these relays in certain ways, and we add up with an adder and maybe a um, bit of memory, and then we connect them in certain ways, and in the end we've got a computer. And as I was reading the book, being, being an engineer, I had the technology here, I had breadboards and I had logic chips, so I started plugging these things together. Okay, And um, so as I went through the chapters, I built my little thing, computer. And eventually, I ended up with a big breadboard, a bit bigger than an A4 sheet of paper, convoluted with wires. But I had a computer. I had built my first computer. and I was really proud. And I showed this to a teacher, a, a friend, my, my son's friend. His mother came and visited, picked, up, picked him up. She's a math teacher. And I showed it to her. She said, oh, this is really cool. We could possibly use that in the classroom, Um, in brackets, but not with the wires. That's too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Imagining a student pulling out one wire and then all of a sudden nothing would work. So I sat down and turned the breadboard design into um, a printed circuit board design. I've got the boards manufactured. I happened to have worked in a printed circuit board factory when when I was a student. Um, earned a bit of money back then many years ago so I called the owner and said can we do that? And he said yes let's do that and um, did that, built it, assembled it showed it to the teacher, we did a few design iterations but that eventually led to um, a microprocessor yes I've built my own microprocessor um, which is modular so you can connect different parts and, and run experiments with that and that is what's what has resulted into this before, before microprocessor, So, before is a little bit of no, a... Yeah. Before, Before we did the computing that we did today. So, just to recap. what's yeah, the questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, to, to recap, because, yeah, that's, that's all new stuff. So, uh, we in the maker space, at least, you know, the maker revolution, a lot of what uh, kids learn about electronics uh, at the discrete level, say, transistors, LEDs, resistors. When it comes to the microprocessor, there's the Arduino, so there's the, the black integrated circuit. There's a lot of magic happens inside, but that's just as far as we go to to analyze what's happening inside a computer. And same thing happens with the Raspberry Pi. You can well, see the breadboard, so even Raspberry more Pi. so. You can see the, the Raspberry Pi, you can see various components like the integrated circuits, there's the memory, there's the processor, there's um, a few inputs and outputs and the pins. But what you have done is to build an educational product where you can actually see inside that black chip in the middle of the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi and see how the microprocessor then works.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that in a nutshell what yes, you've done? that's right. That's what the that, b is? That it is, yes. It is like taking the lid off a microprocessor, zooming in, and, and, and keep on zooming in. Looking,
0: looking at the, <laughs> you're zooming quite a bit. <laughs> looking,
1: looking at the different the different parts, and and each of the modules um, has uh, a number of LEDs. So every module can tell you exactly in what state it is, what data is in there, and and um, when you do that, and I'm teaching the blue, the B4 in in the classroom um, here at St John's Anglican College in Forest Lake in Brisbane. Um, so I'm supporting the ICT teacher. And it's really great, like just today we did the binary number system, so we took just one of the modules out of the before kit, which is the counter, and we started to count in binary. we learn the kids learn counting in in decimal in year one, I love right? binary. <laughs> so we counted in binary, and then we were running. It's a, so much a simpler than
0: the decimal. Yeah,
1: I would say so as well.
0: <laughs> I think if kids learn binary first, mm-hmm. they will find it much easier to do pretty much any calculation that that matters least than decimal system. It's,
1: it's a good maybe argument for we should that. should try that one day. Yeah, maybe talk to the math teacher for year one. <laughs> 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 but the 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 idea is that you, uh, look, um, when, when I was at school, I came home and I, I had a little table, a little old camping table with electronic stuff. That was my lab. And I loved experiments. And I uh, purchased electronics kits that I could get back then in Germany. They were really sophisticated. Imagine, back in the 1985, '86, I paid 200 dollars for an electronics kit. I have no idea what that would <laughs> yeah. be in today's currency, but hey, a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of money. And the idea that you can do experiments and do it in a self-directed way, um, not anyone telling you what you should be doing, you can branch out. That's that's the kind of learning that I like very much. Do you have some
0: any formal... Uh, I understand now that you are supporting uh, teachers in their work. Uh, have you got the experience as a formal teacher or training
1: again? No, I'm not a formal teacher, no. I'm, um, I'm an engineer, but not, a, not an educator as such. No, not a credit ed- ed- educator. No. But I work so with you're, teachers.
0: You're wor- yeah. So I'm thinking that the experience that you have in teaching really stems out of the way that you have learned how to learn as a kid with your experimentation and, and your small lab with your kids. And then today, we're not taking a problem and figuring out how to solve it and, and build a microprocessor on a breadboard, essentially. And is that what, what informs you in the way that you teach today?
1: Um, yes, I think it does. Um, also an experience that I had in year nine. Um, I was a, look If you look at my school career, I was a brilliant student in primary school. Okay, and then in, <laughs> me too <laughs> and then best student in year four um then in 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 my state in Germany, um we transitioned into high school in year five, so i didn't have to learn much in primary school came easy got much diff- more difficult at high school, and at that time only about twenty percent of a cohort would go to high school all right so there was, it's a, it's a streamed education system in Germany, so all of a sudden, you find yourself among. M- more bright students and the school expects you to learn. I hadn't learned how to learn and I had a steady decline until year nine when I almost hit rock bottom, got an E in mathematics. Can you imagine that? Okay. Oh wow. Yes, almost, almost. <laughs> yes, had- I do. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I almost had to repeat year nine, but that experience really taught me that I had to learn how to learn which I then did, and in, look, I finished year 13. German high school went until year 13 back then. I finished again as best student. Okay, so my, my career is like an up and a down, a really low down, and then an <laughs> up. So, and during that phase, um, I, I, I had to learn how to learn, I had my experiments, and I put all these things together and found the way that worked best for me, my learning approach,
0: okay? Can I, can I ask you, Karsten, sorry to interrupt, uh, what, what triggered, if you remember, because I don't, it's been a long time, but if you remember, what triggered those ups and then those downs? So what was happening in your mind or in your environment when your learning was going up like a rocket? And then what was happening when the opposite was taking place? Foundations. Was, was it people? Was it environment? Was it you know, family, perhaps? problems that you had to deal with?
1: Oh, look, um, when you're about in year eight and year nine and you're in the middle of puberty, there are many things that you are not interested in, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and other are things you're more interested in. But um, <laughs> what was always odd, like, I was very good in physics, but at the same time I was poor in mathematics. And the school looked at this thinking, how can that be? How can you be brilliant at one and poor at one and the other? It turned out I was lacking the foundations in mathematics. Uh, uh, mathematics is one of the fields where you always have to stay on the ball because every year something new is being added to the stack. And if you're lacking um, the lower la- layers, then it's really difficult to make connections on the upper layers. So I had to go back and relearn some of the lower layers.
0: Did you do that on your own or did you have some help from teachers? I had some help. from My
1: parents helped me with the tutor. And then we established, we established the foundations, and then also we looked at what are my learning styles, what's the best way to learn. And you would be surprised, there's a lot of things that you need to memorize in mathematics. Mathematics is about logic, but not just. There's a lot of things that you have to learn by heart so that your brain can make the connections then on the higher levels and say, oh, these things are related, and you need to bring them together. So um, it turned out that by learning more about history, where you have to memorize a lot of things, I also became a better math student. So I'm a, so, I'm a, so I'm actually a bigger fan of giving the kids more subjects, and like up until year 12, I think I had I have 10 different subjects at high school, and not to specialize them too early, because you like if you now take, for example, Math B and Math C and physics and chemistry, these are already four subjects out of your six. So you're pretty much lopsided. It's, I think it's not balanced enough. I think the you get better um, education outcomes by giving the kids um, more, a, a, a wider range of subjects. So that was at least my personal experience.
0: So that's the, the logic behind that is in order to expose children to more stimulate perhaps and to stress, to stretch them a little bit more, right? And through stretching, you improve capability, tolerance, uh, make them stronger.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, trigger and use different areas of the brain, because they need to work Hmm. together. It's one brain after all, it's not two brains or three brains that we have, which are compartmentalized.
2: So I was going to ask um, teachers today, they're being taught how to do programming, let's say Python, and they get scared. And then you take them to Scratch, and they're still a little bit scared. But you're going quite the opposite direction, going down to the, well, below the processor level. You're going to electrons, yeah. not the bits. Yeah. <laughs> yes. How do Are you You make... try to scare them even more. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that. How do you make this approachable for the teachers? How do you present it in such a way that they don't get scared? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So my, my f- core assumption is that over the last uh, 10, 20 years, uh, we've added several layers upon layers upon layers in computer science. Um, that means that when you work in an environment, w- which have, has a very nice, beautiful integrated IDE, you do things, but you don't really know what is happening inside the machine, which means that your learning experience is somehow limited. It's, it's a little bit like in mathematics, right? If you do everything in the calculator and you don't solve any quadratic equation in calculus, then, well, you never really understand how it works, so, I think there's an argument for removing some of these layers and going back to the basics, and even if that means that it is le- less colorful and 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 less interactive, click and drag and drop. so by doing actually a little bit less by doing this closer to the um, to the source, the learning experience is actually higher, and you can also trace problems much better. i mean i I've, I've done visual programming in, in different languages. When everything goes right, it's fantastic, but if something goes wrong you never know where the error really is isn't it yeah
0: yeah so how, how are the the children that you are instructing uh, in brisbane um how they're handling the the electrons and having basically to work in a bare bones system No scratch.
1: (laughs) Not scratch. Uh, Just buttons. (laughs) Brilliantly. Uh, Just, um, I mean, uh, last month we concluded the first six months of teaching um, computer design um, at the local school here in in Brisbane, St. John's Anglican College, um, that I mentioned. And the kids have been responding amazingly. Uh, Look, we've been doing things, and the kids followed really well, binary counting, we did addition, we did subtraction, doing subtraction by uh, adding the um, binary um, inverse of the number. We learned about data storage and retrieval. We were were coming to a point, and the kids then did that, we we did projects with them, where we said, okay, build a machine that adds even numbers but subtracts odd numbers. Uh, Build a machine that adds an arbitrary number of numbers. Um, Build a machine that just adds three numbers. And what... What really surprised us, the teacher and I, was that the kids came up with designs that I hadn't anticipated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like playing Lego, right? You You give the kids these pieces and say, do something interesting with them. And they come up with all these designs. And and that's where no we realized... Yeah, actually, yes, there's a handbook. I love handbooks. I think handbooks are great. So in the handbook, there are uh, some instructions in there and we teach the kids and we we follow that um, in the classroom. But in order to do these projects, the kids have had really to internalize a lot of the learning and then combine concepts. And they were able to do that, and that. And that's taught... Taught us, the, the teacher and I, that the kids actually can do a lot if we just let them. And, and that is like the design concept in Young ICT Explorers back from 2008. Just let the kids explore, just give them an environment and, and trust them.
0: So, the lack of graphical point and click interface did, did, did it have any effect, negative or positive, in, in your experience? Uh, kids not not having something to click on. <laughs>
1: Surprise! <laughs> well, I gave them buttons to click on. So the before the before is designed interactively. It has buttons. It has dials. Um, there's there are modules in the before. It's a variable. I can give the kids a variable to touch. So not an abstract concept in on a computer screen, but I can give the child a variable in their hands. And they can turn the dial and set the value of the variable. Because a variable is a hard concept for students to grasp, especially around the year seven and eight. But if you can touch it, it becomes much more real.
0: So all that is implemented in a physical format and will include pictures as well in, in the show notes. But uh, just to describe now, it's, it's a physical product. It's composed of various LED displays, Uh, there are various microchips that can implement memories, I suppose, or logic gates, there are input components, so buttons and dials, Mm -hmm. and uh, and it's a modular device, as you said, so you can plug various components into this processor. And then the, the children can use all these facilities to solve a problem, such as figure out how to get this thing to add two binary numbers together or to subtract and so on.
1: Yes, it's a physical product. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah,
1: Yeah. Tactile and interactive, yes. It gets... There comes the point where we connect it then to the laptop when we program it... It's connected to the Arduino IDE, so you can write code in the Arduino environment and then upload it to the B4, and there's a little component, a bootloader. I call it a hacking device because I also use it for cybersecurity-related kind of tasks. So it can temporarily take control of the rest of the machine, and with that, the students learn also how to, how to do a bit of cybersecurity if they're, if they're interested and if they want to. So it opens up quite a few opportunities. Hey. What do you mean by that? Like, uh, Could you give us an example, example of the cybersecurity? Yeah, okay. So, uh, so for example, one of the current approaches that recently was discussed on IEEE is that if you're a hacker, you can hack into the sensor network, like the IoT network of a company. And if you manage to change the sensor readings so that what gets reported to the central decision system is, is somehow flawed, then the central server will take... Uh, make make incorrect decisions right so it will let's say close a valve instead of opening it further. It's like the Stuxnet approach to, to some extent. Just for our audience, can you explain what Stuxnet <laughs> oh, <dear>. was? <laughs> <laughs> you know, was? I'm not sure. Is the, is the CIA listening? Okay. So Stuxnet... It's
0: encrypted. Their episodes <laughs> are encrypted.
1: So, so Stuxnet was was reported to be, and I'm just basing this on on publicly available information, so I've got no deeper insights than that. Um, uh, we, we believe you. And a virus that was infiltrated into the Iranian um, nuclear, nuclear program to uh, damage the centrifuges that would produce the enriched uranium. And uh, what has been reported is that the virus changed the RPMs of the centrifuges so that they would break, whereas the, the monitor and control system still believed that the centrifuges were working with normal parameters.
0: Yeah. So that's cybersecurity. And and how you can tamper with sensors and you know control systems.
2: Okay, so yeah, sorry, keep on going. Um, so you're getting the I kids interested. to do that now.
1: So the the thing, this this automatic programmer is is a tool designed to during the programming phase of the B4 take control of some components so that they don't interfere with the programming phase. But as they as they do that, you could actually say, okay, how do we now influence the what the processor does? And for example, that two plus two is no longer four, but five, what would be the consequence of that? So it's more an opportunity for the students to think about this than actually do real hacking. I mean, we don't want to educate them to bring down the the cybersecurity um, network of Australia. Um, But I think by being aware of these attack vectors, um, we are educating the future generation to take countermeasures in the design of software later. Uh, Just
0: just the awareness aspect of this is important, right? We depend so much on technology, our phones, Mm. computers, emails. So being aware, Facebook, being aware of all these parameters uh, of what our data or how our data can be tampered with. Mm, Tampered, yeah. Tampered with, uh, that's, that's important on its own.
2: Yeah, it's a, a lot deeper than I thought you were going to go. I thought mm-hmm. you were going to say, "Oh, random number generator."
1: <laughs> yeah, um, random number generator. That's maybe the <laughs> good idea.
0: Try that Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what age children are we talking about now?
1: About year seven and up. So that's the twelve-year-olds and 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 older. That's about the the age I'm aiming this at. Whereas the components of the B4, like the counter, which I've even taken into kindergarten and uh, let the kids experiment with that, which was fun. But the kindergarten. <laughs> kindergarten, yeah. But but actually the, the 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 concept, the course of the B4 and building things there, there comes a handbook like with fourteen experiments that's been that's been designed for year seven and up, yeah. And we've had kids there that looked at my designs, said, uh, "Dr. Schulz." Um, there's a simpler way, thank you. <laughs> Let me show you now. <laughs> and they did. That's crazy. And you know what? I updated <laughs> the handbook with their designs.
0: Yeah, that's
1: awesome. Huh,
0: so how, how are teachers uh, receiving all this? Because uh, okay, it's one thing to show a teacher how to do Scratch and uh, upload it to on a, a, a simple robot. But we now going far deeper. And as you, just, as you said earlier, the, the basics need to be there. So to understand how um, an arithmetic logical unit works, whether it is on a piece of paper or actually working in front of you, you need to understand a bit of binary logic. So I imagine that teachers will need to be somehow trained and brought up to speed with all those concepts before they can apply something like the before computer in the classroom. Mm. Uh, how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. Um- the the way I've designed the, the the lessons is that the students work more or less self-directed. So, the teacher would give like a five-minute introduction at the beginning of the lesson. Today, we're looking at binary edition. But then the students can do most of the stuff themselves, and that's being then complemented by um, online videos, um, my own, some of my own making, some of other uh, videos that I found for online. For example, James May from Top Gear. Hey, he has made a brilliant video about mm. binary numbers. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. One of the best videos (laughs) out there on YouTube. You should look it up. Uh, It's great. So uh, I'm trying to make the life of the teachers a bit easier and at the same time also give them the confidence um, that it is doable. And surprisingly, by by removing these layers, you also remove complexity, as as odd as it sounds. and, And you give the students a deeper learning experience because there are a lot of branch points when, when we talk, for example, about a code in the before, 4 um, I like to make the connection about the code that runs in the cells of our bodies. And one little analogy that I like to use... Like gene. Like the, in the genes, that's right. So if I gave um, one of my cells to um, a forensic scientist, then she could extract the DNA from that cell. And that's, that DNA strand is about two meters long. Consists of... Um, uh, 3 billion base pairs, which is an m- a enormous amount of information. And then we look at... There's a
0: lot of junk in that, though.
1: No, actually, surprisingly, <laughs> the scientists increasingly find that there's not that much junk so in useful. our DNA. Yeah. It's just that they haven't yeah. understood yet. You know, we've, we thought the appendix was mm. just junk, and then we realized that it actually has a purpose for our <laughs> immune system, like the tonsils. So if we took the DNA st- strands from every cell in our body and we've got 37 trillion cells in our bodies. So 37 trillion times two meters, that is 74 trillion meters or 74 billion kilometers. Now, that is the equivalent of Earth-Pluto return five times. Okay, tell that to your (laughs) year eight students. That will impress them. Okay,
0: now they listen.
1: (laughs) Now, we've got 37 trillion cells that at any given time of the day transpose and, and, and process code, okay, we are walking supercomputers with free will, yep. okay? And then you talk about the concepts of computing, and that puts everything in a different perspective, because all of a sudden you've made the connection between digital technologies and biology. Mm-hmm. That's actually
0: a great argument for teaching children to, you know, think of useful things to do with all these trillions and trillions of, um, of genes and cells. <laughs> <laughs> in your body, yes.
1: it's like it
0: really puts everything in perspective.
1: And there are now great videos that you can find on YouTube about the little molecular machines that work inside of our cells that, that transport things um, from A to B, or that copy DNA, these, these little copy shops, they're machines in themselves. And the information to build these machines is stored in the DNA. That they copy. So let's talk about a chicken and egg problem. You've got the, a, a lot of them inside inside of our cells, but it gets the kids. Evolution. It gets the kids to think about that and and say, okay, bi- biological life is also is also not about computer science. It is information management, and we carry a lot of information inside us.
0: So in that way, you bring up an a knowledge between. Uh biology our own bodies and how this device on the table with the flashing lights relate to each other that both process information and do something useful or hopefully useful with that information
2: uh yes yeah. just uh just this week uh there was a paper about uh, some scientists that encoded a video into dna and then were able to oh. grow the cells and then copied it grab the DNA again, and then play back the video.
0: Oh, very nice. So from a, from a, copied, uh, from a copied cell. From a copied right. cell. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because
2: you can now go and synthesize it's your own DNA. Incredible. That's, you know, a few bucks. It's the first yeah. step
0: towards uh, hybrids. <laughs> <Quite
1: scary. laughs> but it just tells you how efficient DNA storage is, isn't it? It's it's tiny. Yeah. It's enormously compact, just about the quantum quantum fluctuation level, and you can do so much with that. And And the
0: coping efficiency as well is quite amazing. Uh, The way that, you know, the self-correcting coping Mm -hmm. uh, of a cell into other cells Mm -hmm. for thousands and thousands and thousands of times, it's basically a digital system, uh, very efficient and very accurate in those Mm -hmm. operations. Yeah. Wow. So we're looking at, yeah, I'm looking at the time and there's a few other things that we want to ask you in the next, say, 10, 15 minutes. So, for example who if there's one or maybe two people that are either dead or alive that have really influenced the way that you think the way that you learn or operate every day,
1: who would that be probably my yes year, year my year ten maths and physics teacher he he was a track and field athlete uh so was I at the time and and he really I mean remember that in year 9 I had an E in mathematics okay and <laughs> so in year 10 um I did I did really well under him and he really rekindled my love for for mathematics so um if anyone How, did did do him, it? How? I don't know yeah I it's look I don't know the rest of the class didn't really like him um, <laughs> I thought he was brilliant <laughs> he had the special way he was maybe he was nerdy enough for my taste he he was he was digging deeper he was not giving just superficial answers he did he did the, the 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 deep digging and satisfied my curiosity to understand how things worked
0: so you were able to communicate with him perhaps in a way that you could not with other math teachers right and that brought you closer to mathematics and
1: yeah, it was the right mathematics teacher for me at the time, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's important. I think
0: everybody should be lucky enough to have at least one teacher mm-hmm. in their life that really has an
1: impact. So, yeah. great. Another person, if I may mention him, because he, he, yep. we all know him, but Albert Einstein. Yes. <laughs> and, and not just because was he, he was a genius, but years ago I I had the fortune to read his paper that he wrote in 1905 about the special relativity theory. And the way that he did this with natural language, he didn't use much formalism back then. And it so impressed me that a scientist can use just mainly natural language in order to lay the foundations of modern physics. Yeah, and I thought yeah. that, that's pretty special.
0: And all, I think that paper was also particularly short. I think just a few pages where... Uh, papers together, just academic papers, when, when I was in academia, used to be uh, 20, 30 pages.
1: Yes, and, and <laughs> yeah. lastly about formalisms, <laughs> <minutes, laughs> which nobody can yes, read. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, Where
0: well, back then, things were very very simple in terms of the length. The pe- uh, scientists wanted to be brief and to the point. Mm. So, yeah,
2: thank you for that. Um, Marcus. I've got a list of questions here, and the one that I've got to ask you so what is your programming language of choice? Because it's quite ironic, because what you're doing is you're not really doing much programming <laughs> with your computer, well, at least from a language perspective. A higher level language, you, well, from you use machine
0: code, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. One oh one one Look, I've heard about 12 programming languages so far, um, some more mainstream, some very... I don't think they even exist anymore. Just uh, experimental languages, that's right. But I think hmm. where I, I'm, I'm gravitating to when I have to solve something, it's C and its various variants, such as Objective-C or C++. So I, I find myself always drawn back to to the C compiler because then I can see what's going on.
0: Yep. That's the language of engineers.
1: <laughs> yes, it
0: is. Yes. <laughs> Do you have any applications that you can't live without? Uh, things or applications that can organize your workload, perhaps uh, help you remember things. Anything that you can't live with even email would be. Yeah, a choice.
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one app that I use every day, other than email and and the normal word processing, is uh, Wunderlist from a which 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 was a a brilliant startup from Berlin. Um, and I really like like the way that they've solved task management. I think they're now part of Microsoft, uh, but they still do a very good product. I still I still use and like it.
0: They're quite similar to Trello, aren't they? On the outside, it's like a to-do application, but it's quite uh, complex or oh, no, com- capable inside with processes and rules and all that.
1: Okay, I should look into that. I haven't used that yet.
2: Hmm. Uh, right. I haven't used it mm. for years. Back when they were still. An Accelerator app. Do yeah. You, do you guys remember Accelerator? Oh, yeah. You, you write in JavaScript and then it cross-compiles to, I guess, native frameworks yeah, on whatever know. target device.
0: I've moved through quite a few of these to-do apps. <laughs>
2: it's just complicated. Anyway. <laughs> um, Marcus, any other questions? Oh, How should new educators get prepared for teaching STEM? Okay, that's a good one. Mm,
1: good one. Um... Look, I think STEM STEM needs to be experienced, cannot be taught, just taught. Um, I think uh, a new educator should develop a good repertoire of examples that demonstrate the application of STEM um, inside and outside of the sciences. So, what one one example I love, for example, is is how ge- uh, relativity theory by Albert Einstein. Developed a hundred years ago, now makes the global positioning system possible. I think that's the, that's the kind of example where it says, "Wow, somebody had has done something, had no idea about its application at the time, but powered through, and now it's it's absolutely necessary. We all use it in our smartphones. We all have GPS chips there. So kind of these examples, they are I, I like them. Or
0: that's great, yeah. <laughs> So experience, I think uh, that's quite profound. Got to experience to know what it's like. Absolutely. Again, uh, learning through doing (laughs) comes out. Um, Great. I think uh, we'll stop about here, Carsten. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you just to leave, uh, to, to stop the discussion here. If people that are listening to this podcast would like to get in touch with you and discuss any of the topics that we uh, yet you mentioned, and I think that Before Computer is a great thing to talk with you about, mm-hmm. uh, how do they get in touch with you?
1: Uh, they can send me email or contact me on Twitter. Uh, they can find me on on um, on Google. Uh, just type in Carsten Schulz or Digital Technologies Institute. My Twitter handle is Schulz. no T, K-K-S-C-H-U-L-Z. And uh, maybe you put my email address on your on your podcast sure. um, website. So I'm very much looking forward to um, getting feedback and comments and thoughts.
0: Do you deliver workshops um, physically or online? If people would like to, um, you know, participate in one of those workshops and find out about the 4 computer,
1: sure, absolutely, yeah. They just contact me for that. Great. Yeah, do that.
0: Awesome. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Carlson. Really you enjoyed it. the conversation. And uh, actually looking forward to have a look at your computer. I think uh, next time I'm in in Brisbane, I'll look you up.
1: (laughs) Yes, thank you so much, Peter and Marcus. It's been great speaking with you. And thanks again for having me.
0: That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode and subscribe on itunes by searching for the name of our podcast stemiverse that is s-t-e-m-i-v-e-r-s-e thanks for listening and we'll see you next time